0: Well, good morning, good morning church. Welcome back to the book of Isaiah. This text that you just heard is the, is the latter half of chapter 37, uh, but we're gonna talk through the whole chapter because this, this closes off the, the Assyrian side of the story, and it closes it off in a kind of gruesome, spectacularly gruesome way. Now, as you, as you probably know by now, Slim and I have slightly different preaching styles. Slim will often go with the three alliterative points, which is great. My MO is two movements what the text says, and what the text means for us. Straightforward, that's what we can expect this morning. So Isaiah 37 follows the, the threats of the Rabshaka from Isaiah 36. And so this, this week we're gonna find out how, how King Hezekiah responds. But most of all, we're going to learn about the power of prayer. So let's jump into it. I wanna spend a few minutes talk talk, talk about what happened in chapters 36 and 37, then we'll talk about why we should care. Where we were last week, The Rabshaka, the king of Assyria's chief advisor, showed up on Judah's doorstep, and he threatened them. He taunted the Lord, he attempted to flex what little power he had, and he goes on and on about how many nations Assyria has stomped beneath its feet, and he threatens that Judah is going to be next. And so on top of that, as was customary, he insulted the God who Judah served, saying that this God wouldn't be able to protect them. And so at the beginning of Isaiah 37, Hezekiah hears this report, he tears his clothes, and he puts on sackcloth, which is customary for prayers of repentance. So keep that, in, keep that in mind. That's Hezekiah's first move, repentance. And so then he sends his advisors to the prophet Isaiah to tell him what the Rabshakeh said. And Hezekiah's words are in verses 3 and 4. He says this, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, or the rapshaka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives." Keep a mental note of all the circumstances where prayer shows up. Here, Hezekiah is asking Isaiah to pray for those who survived the siege of Assyria. Isaiah responds, and he says, hey, the Lord Lord heard what the Rabshakeh said, and this king is going to get a message, and he's going to go back home, and that's where he's going to die. Well, the scene switches to the Rabshakeh's point of view. As the Rabshakeh returns home, and he sees that King Sennacherib is fighting. King Sennacherib had just gotten a report that the king of Ethiopia was coming for him. And so he hears this report, and so he decides, you know what, I've still gotta make sure that Judah's on their toes. So he sends Judah another letter. And in this letter he says, look, don't trust your God. We're Assyria, the big bad empire. We've run roughshod over all these other nations, and we're gonna do the same thing to you. So Hezekiah gets this letter, and he reads it, and he goes immediately to the temple, and he lays it before the Lord, and he prays. Now, Hezekiah, like all the kings of Israel and Judah, has a mixed history and legacy. But here, he does exactly the right thing. Here's his prayer in verses 16 to 20. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel who are enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Now, what's most surprising about this passage is the Lord's response, which Bethany just read to us. Now, it's not surprising that the Lord acts. After all, it's, it's his people. like He loves to protect his people. But what's surprising is why God intervenes. Isaiah gives the why explicitly in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you prayed to me concerning King Sennacherib of Assyria, This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Because you prayed to me. Don't miss that. Not not because Sennacherib is a jerk. Not because Isaiah prayed to me. Not even because I'm a just God who always protects his people. All of those things are true. All those things are perfectly fine reasons for God to respond in the way that he does. But But that's not why he says he responds. He says that Hezekiah's prayer... Is the reason why. And so then the Lord speaks his word that Sennacherib is going to fall because of his pride, that it's ridiculous for Sennacherib to think otherwise. I love the tone of the Lord's response because the Lord is just mocking right back. Verses 24 to 29. By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are, and when you come, and go, and how you rage against me. The Lord tells Hezekiah, That a remnant is going to survive, and that Sennacherib won't even be able to fire another arrow at them. But how does this come to fruition? Well, that's the last three verses of this chapter. Verses 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adrammelech and Shar-Azer killed him with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And asar his son, succeeded him as king. That is gruesome work on the part of the angel of the Lord. 185,000 people dead in a night. Ancient Greek historian Herodotus, in reflecting on this event, said that it was a plague of mice that, that ate all of their bows and their bowstrings and their shield straps, and they all died in battle. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that plague destroyed the army. Here it says it's the angel of the Lord. Now, while we don't know exact, the exact way that it happened, what Isaiah is concerned with letting us know is that it did happen, that God protected his people with a miracle. Now that's going to make some of us uncomfortable. I mean, 185,000 people, that's a lot of death. But I want us to remember something. Assyria is an empire, a violent empire, the, an empire the likes of which the world had not yet seen. It was most well known for its military prowess, but it's also what's called the first territorial empire in world history. So before before Assyria, uh, what 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 a lot of empires would do is they 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 would they they in in conquering a nation they would they would let that nation still function, but they would just exact taxes for you basically for you to continue to live in peace you've got to pay us. This is similar to what we might call. Neo-colonialism, which is what a number of countries in the West engage in now, where through through, eco, through economic exploitation you maintain power over particular nations. But what Assyria does, Assyria is like, no, 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 like we're gonna rule you. So we're gonna take all of your, we're gonna take all of your elites, and we're gonna train them to be like us, and then your then your nation is gonna run the way that we want them to run. Assyria is probably historically the first empire to actually function in this way. And so what that points to is something that I've referred to before. The logic of empire, the logic of domination, and the logic of violence. This is how Assyria operates. Might makes right. And since they were the strongest, they happened to win often. But then they came up against somebody a little bit stronger. We're reminded that the logic of violence is always going to be the mode of fall of these empires. Or as Jesus would say, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Empires fall, and the bloodiest empires do not die bloodlessly. And so the Lord defeats the Assyrian army, Sennacherib's sons kill him, and and Judah is safe. For now. But, But one of the things that bleeds through this text and it's something that I think in many of our lives it seems, it seems kind of kind of innocuous yet. But, but, this, but this is perhaps the most powerful tool in our spiritual arsenal. Prayer. The very simple act of talking to God. This is by far the most important thing that you or I can do. And yet I'm afraid that we don't value it as we should. It's like we have this priceless Picasso and we store it in a closet and only bring it out when we have guests. Have you ever sat and considered the fact that the God of the universe wants to hear from you? And yet that is precisely the picture of prayer that we get in the scriptures. One, one of the most radical things that Jesus emphasizes in his ministry is that he calls God his Father. He uses that language not to emphasize gender or power or submission, but intimacy. Jesus' first mention of his Father in the Gospel of John is when he cleanses the temple. In John two fifteen and 16, he says, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. In chapter 3, verse 35, we're told that the father loves, loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. What binds the Trinity together is love. But if there's one thing that love needs to be present, it's communication. So consider who you communicate with the most. Don't pull out your phone, but if you were to look at it, Who do you call the most? Who do you send page long text messages to? Who do you FaceTime the most? We signal our human priorities by who we stay in constant communication with. So if you were to look at your life, where does the Lord place on your priority list based on your communication habits? How often do you speak to him? Only when you're in trouble? only at perhaps rote times, like before meals or before bed. The Lord is calling us to more. The Lord is calling us to constant communion with the triune God, and this doesn't happen by accident. Prayer is the primary what's called spiritual discipline. As Richard Foster says in his book, Celebration of Discipline, prayer brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. William Carey said that prayer, secret, secret, fervent, believing prayer, lies at the root of all personal godliness. There is no Christian who does not pray. What good is it to call yourself a follower of Christ if you never speak to him? Dear brother, dear sister, the Lord lays an opportunity in front of you. He invites you to pray. He invites you to ask for what you want and what you need. We hear it over and over again in the scriptures. In James 4, we're told, we do not have because we do not ask God. And when we do ask, we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives, with selfishness and greed. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And that might sound like the Lord is just getting a little too liberal with his gifts. and so Jesus continues which of you if your son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a snake if you then though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him prayer always comes back to the relationship that God wants to have with his people the Father wants to gather his children together. He, he wants to comfort them. He wants to empower them. He wants to equip them to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy, he, to, to resist sin, to love, and to set the oppressed free. But God also wants us to know that we can only do those things in intimate relationship with him. The language of the gospel is the language of union with Christ, the closest union that you could ever imagine. You can, you can think about the union of perhaps you and your siblings bound by the common experience of growing up together. You can even think about the union of yourself with your, with your very closest friends, friends who you've gone through life with, folks who, who, who share your interests, all of these things that bind you together. You can, you can consider the union of husband and wife, the, the number of ways that, that married couples are supposed to, supposed to act and live as a unit, but all of these are shadows. Of the relationship that God has called you to with Himself. What Paul says is being in Christ. This is the only way of salvation, the only way of peace. It's union with Christ that enables powerful prayer. So, what does this prayer look like? What can we do today to build new life giving habits of prayer? Well, let's take a look back at Isaiah 37. What's the first thing that Hezekiah does when he gets a distressing report? He repents. This is a great first step to prayer, and it is essential to the gospel. We're told to do two things, repent and believe. But these aren't just one-time activities. They're lifestyles. We've got to keep on repenting, keep on believing. As often as we sin, we ought to be praying prayers of repentance. Now you might get an idea of why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. But that's that's not the only thing that ought to shape our prayers. Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah and asks him to pray too. And while Jesus encourages us to develop a deep and consistent personal prayer life, where you go to your room and close the door and pray, as Jesus says, prayer is also a communal activity. When we live lives according to this personal, communal, and cosmic gospel, we build relationships with other people, other people who we've been called to love. But there's a catch. If, if love is material investment in our neighbors, not just feeling a particular way about them, but actively sacrificing on their behalf, seeking and investing in their good, then what you'll find is when you keep doing that, you're going to find yourself in circumstances where that person that you love needs more than you can give enter the spiritual discipline of prayer. We need to be reminded that your love of your neighbor is not limited by your capacity. You need to be reminded of the well that you can tap into, the well of living water, the well of the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the well of the triune God who loved you so much that one of their number took flesh, lived and died and was raised to draw you into the divine life. When that's your primary way of thinking about yourself, As a child of this king, prayer is obvious, it's regular, it's easy, but prayer is not something that you can do alone. You've got to do it in community. Do you remember a time when you said that you would pray for somebody and you forgot? Anybody remember a time? Does that happen to anybody? It's happened to me. Happens happens to the best of us. Here's Here's how you never do that again. When you feel like you should pray for somebody? do it. Just do it at that time. It doesn't have, to be, doesn't have to be awkward, it can be quick, but just do it. Just like working out or any other habit or discipline, the more often you do it, the easier it gets. And the easier it gets, the less you have to think about it because then it just gets ingrained into your very being. Some of, some of y'all might know people like this where they just, they just pray all the time. It's because of that habit, that, 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 that that's something that they built in them. That intimacy is something that is built over time. But you got to start for that to be built. So prayer begins in repentance, continues in community. But there are a few other things that we learn about prayer from this passage. Hezekiah's prayer after he receives Sennacherib's letter is a prayer of a man who knows the God that he serves. He begins with praise. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. He repeats what God has done and who God is. Not because God forgets, but because we do. Sometimes we forget that our God is merciful. Sometimes we forget that God is kind, that God is just, that God is father to the fatherless, that God is the liberator of the oppressed, that he's the lover of the unlovable, that he's healer of the sick. So it's helpful in our prayers to remind ourselves of the truth. Prayer begins in repentance, continues in community, saturated with praise. But prayer also rests in the promises and the character of God. Hezekiah ends his prayer in verse 20 by saying, Now, Lord our God, deliver us from Sennacherib's hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. If there's one thing that God really likes to do, it's reveal himself. This is the very purpose of the incarnation, to draw the net of the gospel wide, to extend that invitation to all of humanity. This is is what the act of taking on a human nature is meant to communicate with us, that the the Son of God became one of us in order to redeem all of us. And if the prayer is that the Lord would reveal himself and get the glory out of it, chances are very, very high that that's exactly what he's going to do. But he doesn't guarantee that it's going to look the way that you want it to look. And this then gets us into one of the most difficult things about prayer. We often don't know what to ask for. And so, thankfully, the Lord has given us a help. If we're united to Christ, Romans 8.26 applies to us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Even if we don't know the particulars of the will of God, he's given us enough, and it doesn't mean that you'll know every step of the next 20 years, but it does mean that you can trust him with it. I think about this often when I consider why I'm even here in this pulpit. I had no intention of coming to Baylor. I wanted to do my PhD in early Christianity at either Yale or Notre Dame. But but because one of my recommenders sabotaged my PhD applications, Baylor was the only PhD program that I made it into. Add on to that, I applied in theology and then got taken into the History of Christianity program. None of this went according to plan. But people were praying for me. My parents had been praying since before I was born. My dad had been praying Colossians 1 over me every day of my life, that God would fill me with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that I might live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him, that I might bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. Because the Lord closed those doors, he made Baylor my only option, which then made my life take a trajectory that I never imagined hoped for, or asked for, but one that easily surpasses what my hopes and dreams were. While while we may not know the intricacies of the will of God because they're not ours to know, we do know that he's called us to live lives of faithfulness where even in the midst of suffering, he's promised to be with us. Now, the last thing that we learn from this chapter about prayer is perhaps the most controversial point. Prayer does stuff. Like it's not just an exercise that you do to be a better follower of Christ. Like prayer actually does stuff. Now I want to cut something off at the knees because it may be lurking in your mind that sometimes prayer doesn't do anything. I can hear you. This may be one of the reasons you don't pray often. But here's the reason. But here's. But here's the thing. That is a. Uh, that's a bad reason not to not pray. Do you not talk to your parent or or a close friend because you don't get everything you want from them in the timing that you want it? Is that a reason to cut off communication, that alone? When we say prayer doesn't work, what we mean is God doesn't do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. Yes, that's true. (laughs) But if we really do believe that God actually wants what's best for us, then we'll realize that actually God is always working even when we don't see it. And the thing that a healthy prayer life does is it helps us to see life in that way. When we're in constant communion with God, this is, this is, this is one of the things that I, that I, that I, that I love about those times when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm regularly in the Word and regularly in prayer is that the Lord will then show me what he's doing in particular circumstances when apart from that communion, I would have no idea. Prayer does stuff. We are told that God acts in this chapter because Hezekiah prayed. We're told elsewhere in Scripture, here's the real controversy, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, and this is what the Scripture says, prayers have sometimes changed God's mind. Now, if you all know me, you know I'm really into the classical doctrine of God, which includes immutability. That means God doesn't change. So this language of God changing his mind could freak you out but why does it freak you out it freaks you out because it suggests that well if god can change his mind maybe he's fickle maybe 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 i can't really trust him because at any moment he could change his mind but here's the thing god never changes his mind in a way that hurts his people it is always in a way that saves them here's my favorite example Exodus 32, which is, a, which is wild. Okay, so, 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 so the people have just made the golden calf after God freed them from Egypt, which in itself is wild. Aaron takes, Aaron takes all the people's gold and he forms them into a mold and, and he makes a calf and he encourages them to worship it. When you read this, when, when Aaron gets confronted, he's like, I don't know. I mean, just, they just, they, they, they threw their gold in and the calf just came out. I don't know what happened. Uh, Aaron, that is not what happened. Um, so so Aaron 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 makes this calf and Moses and the Lord are just chilling on the mountain and the Lord is mad Listen to Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They've cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you... I'll make a great nation. I'm done with these people. I'm I'm starting over with you, Moses. Which is wild for the Lord to say. The the scriptures are just wonderful. Um, but, But Moses responds by instead calling the people God's people. Who God led out of slavery. He emphasized in prayer that God had made a covenant with them. And God doesn't break his covenants. And verse 14 says, And the Lord relented or changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. Whenever it shows up elsewhere, it's always averting disaster, but it reminds us that if we understand prayer the way that the scriptures understand prayer, prayer actually does stuff. Romans 8.28 even suggests it. You may, you may have memorized it as all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but it's, actually, but it's best understood as God works all things for good together with those who love him. That is, this text is not so much about God working for us As it is about god working with us and this is and this is what i was talking about before that the gospel is an invitation into the divine life a life that's lived by the guidance of the holy spirit in union with christ and in obedience with the father and 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 when that is your prayer rhythm then you then the goal is to live in line with the work that god is already doing in the world one of the most rewarding parts of my life is when i'm just kind of going about my business trying to be obedient to the Lord, and a brother or sister comes up to me and says that this thing was an answer to their prayer. There have been a number of situations today where I've heard of the ways in which God has answered prayer in the lives of people even in this congregation. Prayer does stuff. And and it's not always through like strange supernatural means. Sometimes God answers prayer by using you and I as his hands and feet to love his people. And the more we're disciplined in prayer, the more sensitive our eyes and our spirits get to those realities. Prayer works. Prayer does stuff. In Isaiah 37, the prayer of Hezekiah incited divine action, and not just any divine action, divine action that leveled an army of 185,000 heavily armed imperial soldiers. If Hezekiah's prayer could do that, how much more can your prayer do? You who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, You whose life has been washed by the blood of Christ, you for whom Christ died, you whom the Holy Spirit is working in day by day to conform you to the image of Christ, you who when Christ returns will rule with him. If Hezekiah's prayer did stuff, how much more might your prayer do, especially when linked with obedient action? My first invitation, dear brother or dear sister, is to believe this gospel. Because outside of this Trinitarian life, your prayer is a yelling against the wind. God in his mercy does hear. But apart from faith, he's not as bound to you as he is to his people. But if you repent and believe, God would have you born again as one of his. A child whom he's eager to listen to and to bless. To you who know Christ, I invite you to pray every day all the time tell the lord what's on your mind tell him your fears your hopes your dreams your sins pray for your enemies and those who persecute you as jesus commands pray for their salvation pray for their health let 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 god shape your hopes let god guide you toward the neighbors who god wants you to love and follow the son and the spirit as they reveal to you the will of the father but i'm too busy Or too distracted, you may say. Well, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. Pray that God removes some of the things from your life that keep you from intimacy with him. If you're too distracted, pray anyway. That's why prayer is described as a discipline. It's a muscle to train over and over and over and over and over and over again. The people of God are and will always be a praying people because our God is a God who hears, a God who is eager to listen. So let's, let's pray together.